welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston, and today we will drill deep into two issues. Of course, we do that every week. One, as we always do, is oil and diesel because you need to drill for oil and you need oil to make diesel and you need diesel to make your trucks go. In the second part of our podcast today, we'll talk about the growing tension out in the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, where a group of associations led by the Harbor Trucking Association have gotten together to ask the federal government to step in and bring an end to growing demerge and detention charges that are arising out of the growing container imbalance at those ports. We're going to talk to Weston Labar. He's the head of the HTA in just a few minutes. But let's start by talking about diesel. The DOE EIA weekly retail diesel price is the basis for fuel surcharges. And last Monday, it went up 5.8% cents per gallon for the week. It's up to $2.44.1 per gallon. That is the biggest move this year. It's the biggest move since September of last year. The retail price was doing a bit of catch-up, as it normally does. The commodity price for diesel on the CME has been up mostly in the prior week. After the first news hit about a Pfizer vaccine, it's continued to mostly move higher since we got the second good news on Monday, this time about the Moderna vaccine. As I record this, the CME price of diesel is up about $0.12 from where it settled on that last Friday before the Pfizer announcement. That's a significant move in a small amount of time, and the DOE number this past week finally captured it. But is it all about vaccines? No. We've talked here before about diesel inventories in the U.S. and the world, uh, both being at record highs. The cause of that dates back to the earliest days of the pandemic, Refiners didn't want to make gasoline. Nobody was driving anywhere. They also really didn't want to make jet fuel because nobody was flying. Jet is like diesel. It's a distillate. They also didn't want to completely shut their plants. That's a a really, really big step that you don't like to do because the cost of bringing them back can be enormous. So refiners cut back their operations, but they didn't close down completely. What they did was make a lot more diesel fuel than the world needed, and they did that because it had not its demand had not collapsed anywhere near as much as gasoline or jet. The end result was that inventories of diesel around the world soared. You know, one of the easiest ways to measure inventory is days cover. You take demand, you divide it into inventories, and the number that comes out of that the number that comes out of that is days cover. The number of days that demand could be met solely by inventories. That reached more than 50 days in the U.S., and it stayed there or near there for weeks. Absolutely unprecedented. But what has happened is that gasoline demand is getting back towards some sort of normal. Gasoline demand in the U.S. is still about a million barrels per day below where it was a year ago, but it's also up about three million barrels per day from where it was at the depths of the pandemic. Refiners have understandably started to shift some of their output back toward gasoline and away from diesel. Diesel, of course, never really underwent the collapse in demand of the magnitude suffered by gasoline and jet fuel. The result of that shift and the determination by refiners to get their diesel inventories in line can be seen in this week's EIA inventory numbers. Remember that the day's cover, as I mentioned before, was close to 50 not all that long ago. It dropped six days. At first, it started to come down. Then it dropped six days in one shot in early October. That six-day drop had never been seen in the entire 30-year history of the data series. This past week, it dropped another 2.8 days. It's now down almost 20 days since the high point of early June. But of those 20 days, almost 13 of them have come since early October. And that's why you're getting upward pressure on prices. 
What's interesting, though, is that diesel spreads to crude have shown the occasional move higher, but they're mostly kind of stuck at the same level that they've been the past few weeks, really since September. You have to wonder how long that can last with those inventories declining. You know, the market for physical diesel is like the last mile of a freight delivery. Most of the journey to the retail price is created by the price of crude, and that's higher by a few dollars since the first vaccine announcement. The last mile then can be viewed as the spread between the commodity price on CME and the physical diesel price in places like the Gulf Coast. You can also see it sometimes on the CME by looking at the spread between crude and diesel. And right now that really hasn't moved much. But a drop in inventories that much would, I would think, have some bullish impact on diesel beyond just the commodity price. It really isn't there yet, but it is definitely something to watch. This isn't a prediction on prices. I'm not going to make that. All anybody keeps saying these days in the face of growing virus spread is we don't know where anything will be in the next month. What's the pace of lockdowns versus the pace of stimulus versus the pace of people just staying home to avoid the risk of infection? It's a big question, and diesel isn't immune from it. We're going to turn our attention now to Weston Labar. He is the CEO of the Harbor Trucking Association. That's the trade group that represents the drayage industry in the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. The HTA uh, partnered recently with the California Trucking Association to put out kind of a public call to fix things at the port. There's a variety of problems there that uh, affect many, many parts of the, all the moving parts, but the drayage industry in particular. That got a response on it from Maersk, which is a very big deal. And then the HTA in a press conference this past week called on the Federal Maritime Commission to do something about the growing issue of massive demurrage and detention charges that are hitting the trucking industry. I, I'm Weston, I tried to sum that up as briefly as I can, but I don't know if I, that was oversimplification. Well, John, thanks for having me, but it's not an easy subject to simplify. And I think that's one of the problems is it's a very complex issue. Uh, there's a lot of different stakeholders that that uh, contribute to the cause and the effect. Uh, and what we're looking for is to fix these issues. I, I tell people I've been a CEO of the HTA for six years, and I've been through five once-in-a-lifetime episodes, uh, everything from a, a labor lockout to a shipping bankruptcy to a trade war, and then two this year. One was a, a virtual shutdown because of the COVID impacts for manufacturers in China, and then obviously the, the huge surge of cargo uh, that we've seen as it results to stores trying to restock their shelves and the massive amounts of e-commerce uh, that, that's happening and, and the uptick in volume because of it. And so um, the problem that I see is we have the same issues every year. Uh, it's just we don't fix them. And, and this issue's been, pro this time I should say, it's been so prolonged that we have to fix it. And I think people realize that we have to fix it. But just quickly on the note of detention and demurrage, if you want to know if a system's broke, the goal every year should be to have zero dollars of detention and demurrage collected. That means that the system is working perfectly and we're collecting hundreds of millions of dollars. It goes up every year. And we know for a fact that certain ocean carriers actually bake it into their budget as if it's revenue. And that's when you know something's broken. Right. Now, let's let, let's go back here for a second. We know that there's been a surge in imports at the ports of L.A., Long Beach. The numbers that are coming out every month are just record breaking. But that should not cause a crisis. 
I mean, your view, you and I have spoken a couple of times, and I listened to your press conference last week, uh, is that the system had fundamental flaws in it, that when you dump this surge on, it just really caused all these flaws to break. What is the, what are the, what is the problem? Why are there massive detention and demerge charges right now? Yeah. So there's a couple things. Um, and, and to your point, the more volume you put through this port, the more exacerbated the issues have. And, and that's part of the problem is we've got 10 gallons of cargo that we're pouring into a five gallon bucket. And because of that, you're going to stress the system. But but that's not a, it's not that simple. And, and to oversimplify it, I think, is is uh, not fair to what's actually going on here. So currently, Today, we have 12 vessels at anchor, meaning that they're waiting to get in the port because there's not enough berth space. Uh, the last time I saw that many vessels at anchor was when we saw the labor uh, negotiations create a slowdown in 2014-15 um, when we had vessel lo- lines going all the way down from Long Beach to Newport Beach waiting to get in the harbor. Uh, and so one of the problems is, is we get these bigger vessels in and, and, and we have a line waiting to get into the port is you don't have a recovery time. Uh, you couple that with a systemic shortage of skilled labor for the ILWU, uh, which means if you have a big vessel uh, at harbor and you typically it takes four or five days to work the vessel, uh, the reason that you can get it in and out quickly is because you just hire more labor. You maybe throw seven, eight, nine gangs at it. Well, right now there is a cap because of the, the shortage of skilled labor, meaning the crane uh, drivers and the, or the crane operators and the top handler drivers and things of that nature. Um, and they're capped at three gangs per ship, which means that the ship needs to be at, a, at birth maybe eight or nine days, uh, which creates this backlog. Uh, we don't have, they don't have enough skilled labor to load back all the empties on the vessel. So we read about all the empties that the world is missing. Well, they're all here in Long Beach and LA. They're either at the port or in a trucker's yard. And that's a huge issue uh, because we are having members that are getting locked out. Terminals can't take back more empties, which means that uh, you can't pick up your imports because we have a chassis shortage. Um, so the terminal gets continuously more congested. That feeds out into the system because those those containers stay in truck yards. And this is where our fundamental issue on detention and demurrage is, is if an ocean carrier is not fulfilling their part of the equation, or essentially if a trucker is locked out, and, and I use the example, the gate might be open, but a bar could be open. If there's a long line, I can't get a drink because of fire code. That's what we're dealing with. I, I can't get my reservation to get in and to get my container in or out. And so, yeah, um, let me interrupt. I wanted, I wanted to mention the analogy that you did on the pre- on the press conference call the other day, which I thought was a good one. It would be like if you rented a car from a rental yeah. car company and you said you were scheduled to bring it back on Monday and they said, well, you can't bring it back on Monday. And we're talking about containers. You can't bring it back on Monday. You got to bring it back on Wednesday and we're going to bill you for Monday and Tuesday and part of Wednesday, even though you expect to be able to bring it back on Monday. And you're saying that that really, to me, summed up why the demerge and detention charges are soaring. Yeah. And that's specifically the example for detention. And, and thanks, John. That, that That's the one I think that really makes people understand how it works. On the demerge side, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's kind of the situation of uh, maybe the better example is a restaurant. You know, the restaurant's open, but I have to make a reservation and it's booked until Friday, well, that means it's not open for me on Monday. And so to charge the to charge me essentially as if I'm eating there every day, even though uh, you're not letting me in the restaurant, that's what we deal with on the demurrage side. There's there's a lack of chassis, there's a lack of appointments, 
There's a lack of skilled labor. And then we have a, an increased dwell time on the chat on the pool pool chassis uh, because of COVID restrictions at the distribution centers. The chassis then get stuck in truckers' yards as they try to make appointments to return them. That's the enterprise rental car uh, analogy. And, and because of this, as you can see, the system's broken. And, and what I think is so interesting, like I said, the goal every year should be to charge $0 of detention and demurrage. But if, if carriers are baking detention and demurrage into their bottom line as if it's revenue, then they're profiteering from the inefficiencies that they're creating. And fundamentally, that's not how this industry should work. We should make money when we move containers. We shouldn't make money when containers don't move. And that's what we okay. have to do. So, so in your press conference, you also issued a call for the Federal Maritime Commission to step in. And I separately talked to Commissioner Dan uh, Maffei. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, um, and yeah, and he um, uh, and clearly you've already been talking. It's not as if the the call in the, in the press conference to the FMC to do something was the first time that this came up. You've been talking to the FMC. Dan, certainly Commissioner Maffei uh, indicated that the FMC might be disposed towards stepping in and taking some action. Uh, where does that stand? Since since your press conference last week, uh, have you had further discussion with FMC and what kind of steps can they take? Yeah. So, so as you've mentioned, we've had ongoing dialogue with the FMC. Um, we know that they're looking at this issue. They, they issued the interpretive rule earlier this year, which, which kind of outlined what they view as reasonable business practices, which none of the ocean carriers have implemented into the way they do business. So legally, there's a, the term of unreasonableness, which uh, I think can, if you're not following what they say is reasonable, you could look at it and say that what they're doing is unreasonable. And we're waiting to see how the FMC is going to handle that situation. Uh, we are inclined to believe that they will be uh, doing something uh, to hold carriers accountable. But uh, it, we have to wait and see what, what comes from the Federal Maritime Commission. I think ultimately the other thing that we look at is these alliance structures are up for reauthorization uh, next year. And if the efficiencies that have been created on the water side are creating so many inefficiencies on the land side that are negatively impacting American companies, American workers, and, and American consumers, uh, then, then are the alliance structure something that we should allow to operate here in the United States uh, without the type of guidelines that force them to operate in a re reasonable fashion? And I think ultimately, if we don't get some sort of reprieve or, or some sort of buy-in from the carriers and some and, and oversight from the FMC, that's, that's the next thing we have to push on is the dissolution of the alliances. And let's let's talk about the alliances and where it's hurting truck drivers. As you explained to me, um, you can have two companies that put two companies or more that pull together in an alliance. And the problem from the drayage carrier side is that it often results in a situation where they drop off a container at point A, but they have to pick up another container at point B. And this is you know, very inefficient. And this is the kind of thing where maybe that kind of system does make it more efficient for the shippers, for the, the, the ship owners, but definitely is not working well for the drayage drivers. The, the drayage drivers, the marine terminals, the chassis providers, you name it. Uh, John, before the alliance structures, it was a very simple process. Blue container, and, and I use blue because Maersk has actually reached out to work with us, but the blue container came in on the blue ship. It went to the blue terminal. It got put on a blue chassis. The trucker took it to the customer. They picked up an empty blue container on a blue chassis, and they took it back, and, and it was a nice round trip. It was vertically integrated. It was very seamless, and now it's an Easter egg hunt. 
It's a blue container on a green ship going to the red terminal. Uh, and and what, what happens is, especially now with these appointment systems, the ocean carrier directs the, well, the trucker has to make an appointment to return the empty container. Uh, and what we've asked for is advanced notification so we can pair that up. And, and the marine terminals, by and large, have been great partners in implementing technological enhancements to their appointment systems to make this process simpler. And we've been working with them all year on simplifying the technology uh, for the dispatcher to be able to do this. But they'll open up their appointments in some cases three or five days uh, in advance. But the trucker doesn't know where the container is going to go back uh, uh, directed by the ocean carrier until 4 p.m. the day prior, essentially 18 to 24 hours in advance. Why is that a big deal? Because now a trucker has to make a reservation saying they'd like to bring a container back at, at every single terminal that may possibly be a return location because you don't know which one will actually be the return location. And then with the restrictions that we see from the terminals right now, because uh, they run out of dock space, so they can't take any more empties back, or they have a chassis-related issue, so they create a chassis-related restriction, uh, dual transactions only because we don't have empty containers, um, things of that nature, or, or we don't have enough available chassis, I mean, uh, those types of things. Uh, you really don't know whether you're going to be able to terminate that empty until you've done it. That's when you feel 100% confident that that appointment is going to be a real appointment that, that you can keep. And so what happens is you see a whole host of single transactions. And again, I think that the, the terminals have done a good job of trying to utilize the technology to increase duels. Uh, but, and that's container in, container out for the listeners, uh, as opposed to a single, which is a container in or a container out. But what we see is, is these split moves. So what happens is the trucker ends up having to take the container, the empty container to Terminal A. When he goes to leave Terminal A, it's a deficit location for chassis. So they hold the chassis too. Then the trucker leaves to Terminal B without a chassis, which he had if he would have had a dual transaction. He gets to Terminal B and he waits and he waits maybe four or five, six hours until a chassis may or may not show up to try to get that other contain import container out. And so it, it's it's an inefficient process. And and in times when you have the equipment, a bare chassis and the drivers, uh, you actually most trucking operations now are managing the empties and managing the imports where it used to be managing round trips. So our issue is, is that the dual transaction mitigates the chassis shortage. It mitigates the driver capacity shortage. And it also helps us meet our sustainability goals because we don't have drivers going all over the hinterlands trying to return and pick up uh, containers from, from marine terminals. And so that's why we want to focus on efficiencies. All right, let me ask you, uh, let's, let's talk money here. Um, what Can you give some kind of a number about... Um, about uh, the detention and demerge and what those charges are. I mean, are they leveled per container per day? I'm not really sure yeah. how it's set up. And you've asked that the FMC essentially suspend them for, uh, I think it was a fairly open-ended time. Uh, you didn't give a specific date upon which the suspension would end. I mean, that would be a pretty broad exercise of their power. That's generally something government agencies are a little bit loath to do. But do you think that maybe they're a little, they're more open to it at this time? Well, I, I would say that earlier this year, we did have ONE, one of the carriers, for about a month, open uh, widely um, wave detention because marine terminals were closing. It was impossible to get things back. And they understood that the administrative and cost burden on the trucker was unreasonable. And, and so they, they suspended it. Maersk did it for about a week um, when it got really bad. 
But but other carriers, uh, for instance, CMA, there was a point in time where for about 10 straight days, based on terminal schedules and other things, you could not return an empty container in the harbor, yet they were still assessing um, they were still assessing detention on the trucker. And that's that whole enterprise rental car issue that we were talking about. And so uh, it, it, there's precedent for carriers have doing it earlier this year. Uh, I think that when you have a situation like we're dealing with now, you need to take a look at is it reasonable to charge a shipper or a trucker detention or demurrage when essentially terminals are at a, at a complete gridlock, not because of something that a trucker did, but because of the way that the carriers are not managing their, their uh, empty equipment inventory. And, you know, I think it's a big ask, but you, usually you don't get a reasonable solution unless you have a really big ask. And I think that's where we've gotten to in this point is, we have we are frustrated. We have taken it, and we're not going to take it anymore. Um, and we want to know what powers the FMC has, uh, or the port authorities, because we first asked the port authorities to step in, um, because they do oversee demurrage uh, to to help remedy these situations. And so I don't think it's as crazy as some people seem to think that it is, because we have precedent from earlier this year, uh, but. Nonetheless, we have seen folks push back and, and maybe it's because, you know, it's become a nice revenue stream for them. I don't know. Now, you 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 put out your what I'll call referred to as the call to action, which was just a press release alongside the California Trucking Association. And you did get a response from Maersk. It was fairly generic, general corporate speak. We want to be cooperative. But I mean, you felt it was significant, even though there really was no specifics in their statement. Uh, you were practically gushing about it <laughs> in the press conference about uh, that you felt it was a significant move by them. Since then, nobody else has gone public, but have you heard from any other shippers uh, indicating a willingness to come to the table? We we have not. And that's, that's the reason I was excited about it uh, was it was the first time that an ocean carrier basically publicly admitted, hey, we we are part of the problem. We have culpability here and we need to do our part to help solve the issues that we're creating for the trucker. And that's what I really appreciated about it. Uh, we, we've had subsequent dialogue with Maersk. Um, we're trying to identify areas where we can mutually collaborate. Uh, that'll be where we find out whether there's um, there's going to be some meat to their statement of saying we want to work with the truckers and help them. Uh, we're open to that, that we we are more than open to that. We welcome everybody to do that. But the unfortunate thing is, is the rest of the carriers have not so much as sent uh, an email to say, hey, how can we work with you? And that's the problem is um, the system works for them. They're making money. They make money all the time and they don't care how it impacts the folks here in the local port community. They don't care how it impacts the the shippers, uh, our American importers and exporters, and they don't care how it ends up impacting our consumers here in this great nation. And so, you know, that's the issue I see is these foreign flag vessel lines who the FMC has given the antitrust immunity to create these vessel alliances and, sh and vessel sharing agreements. And then all of the efficiencies they've seen, they refuse to even work with us on something as minimum as can you give us 48 hours advance notification and guarantee where that empty is going to be returned? We've had conversations prior to this call to action with, with two vessel lines where they said, we do that already. Uh, that's not a problem. And then a week later, they said, actually, as we looked into it, 
uh, and spoke to our headquarters overseas, it's impossible to give you more than 24 hours notice. Um, and, and we're not going to be able to help you. I don't think it's that unreasonable to ask an ocean carrier to get on the same page as the marine terminal that they're forcing you to return the container to. It just makes Is sense. It possible? Go ahead. Yeah, let me, let me interrupt. Is it possible they're waiting for Maersk? Is it possible they want to see what steps Maersk takes, uh, what kind of agreement they might come to with the, with the Harbor Trucking Association? And then they'll say, okay, we'll go in line. Maersk is a, is a big player here. And um, they might want to, they might establish the playing field and then the others fall in line. Am I being naive or is that a possibility? I think it's arrogance. I fundamentally think it's arrogance. Uh, when the Federal Maritime Commission and, and Commissioner Rebecca Dye, who's been a tremendous leader in trying to bring the, the port communities together for a resolution on this issue, um, and she did a four-year investigation to, to look into this with fact-finding 28, uh, she issued those rules after a lot of conversation with not just the community that's been affected, like us, but with the ocean carriers. Is this reasonable? Can you do this? And by and large, they all said, yeah, we can. Yet none of them, none of them have implemented any of those rules. And in fact, the majority of them following the release of the interpretive rule, their response was to increase their detention rates. So you tell me, John, if you think that they want to come to the table, they have said, we don't have to listen to you. We don't have to listen to the American government. We don't have to help American companies that we're impacting. Uh, and and that's how I really feel. I think it's just arrogance. Well, we're going to keep watching it, Weston. Uh, we may want to have you back on Drilling Deep because it, it is an issue that that affects so much of the supply chain. You're right down to an independent drainage driver who's dealing with this uh, this situation. I know it's very tough for them. I was looking at a Facebook page of theirs the other day, and somebody took a picture of some long line outside of port and said something like, here we are, six hours to go. So, um, you know, when you see something like that, it becomes very much real life. So we want to thank Weston Labar. He's the CEO of the Harbor Trucking Association for joining us today on Drilling Deep. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the FreightCast family of podcasts from FreightWaves. We are on all the major podcast platforms. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again. <laughs>